And we're live. Friends from around the world, welcome to The Great Debate. Not a debate where both sides work to defeat one another, rather a debate where both sides come together to find common ground on the most important issues of our time. Today, can you guess what we're going to discuss? That's right, the Israel-Palestine conflict. You must come around a lot. How'd you know that? It's going to be a special session, slightly different from what we normally do. Oh, yeah, it's Hanukkah. Chag Sameach. Happy Hanukkah to our Jewish friends from all around the world. I hope you have a relaxing family, a, a relaxing time, hopefully with your families, if it's possible. Eat a lot of sufganiot and latkes. I know I will be doing that. You may have heard me mention that The Great Debate just got some interns. Shout out to Jesse and Alana. They do awesome work. They're helping us improve all aspects of our operation. And one aspect is obviously this show, The Great Debate. And that includes helping me improve as a moderator. So last week we discussed wardrobe. And we came to an agreement that I can't just wear t-shirts to these debates anymore as the host. So we decided on this nice kimono style thing with a white t-shirt underneath. I like the way it looks. Uh, by the way, shout out to, uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. I want to give a proper shout out to the person who made this, a friend of mine, Rachel Kiner, because she sells awesome products. It's called Mind Temple Wear, I believe on Instagram. You can find them. Kimono from Temple Body Wear. So that's at Temple Body Wear on Instagram. Find them. They make awesome kimonos. Why am I sharing this with you? It, I, I, I'm getting, I'm getting to it. I have a reason for this. I only have one kimono, and I'm under the impression that I should not wear the same thing every week. Ilana, however, says that I could. It's acceptable. So I'm bringing this up for two reasons. One, I want to crowdsource the opinions. I want you, the viewers, to let me know in the comments, is it acceptable to wear the same thing every week? I genuinely care about your input. And furthermore, what I will say is we are accepting donations. If you have other style kimonos or other vest-like garbs, we're accepting donations. You could send them over to me, and I will wear them on the show as long as they look nice. Um, they could be any type. They just need to be cool. You can see this is cool. This has to be real, but you know it doesn't need to be real. We're not, you know, we're not super posh. We just want to look cool. That's all. Anyways, um, just put that out there. Let's get the show on the road. If you're new to this channel, like and subscribe. We do this every single week. Today, like, like normally, we're speaking about the Israel-Palestine conflict, but the focus is going to be reconciliation, what the reconciliation process looks like. As we know, peace cannot be attained simply by politicians putting together a political solution, not with such deep levels of hate and distrust between populations. Some form of reconciliation will need to take place in order for peace to be attained. So today that will be the focus of our conversation. Without further ado, it's a great honor to introduce my two guests. Danny and Izzy, it's great to have you here. To my top left, we have Izzy Diab, a Palestinian refugee by birth, working and living in Jordan. She has vested interest in promoting civil liberties and the rights in the Arab world. She's currently working as the executive director of a refugee program in Jordan, focusing on the empowerment of young refugee girls through sports. Welcome, Izzy. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me here. And to my top right, Danny Iftach is an alumni of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem with a BA and MA in Middle Eastern Political Science and a History and, history and International Relations. 
relations. She was raised in L.A. and has been st- living in Israel for 11 years. She is extremely passionate about conducting discussion regarding the Israel, Israeli-Palestinian conflict in hopes of working together to find a solution that would grant equal rights for all. Danielle, it's a pleasure to have you here. Nice to well. have you. Nice to be here. So before we get started, I see some people in the chats uh, starting the discussion. So reminder, have a vibrant discussion in the chat. Just keep it respectful. We're all about respectful and compassionate dialogue. Um, Before we get started, we're going to do a little bit of work to better understand each other's perception of one another's identity, as well as understanding our identities. So, Danny, we'll start with you. Can you share with us what your perception is of diaspora Palestinians like Izzy? Yeah, I think in order for Izzy, for you to understand what I think of a Palestinian diaspora, I need to first compare it to the Israeli diaspora, the one that lived outside of the of Israel for 2,000 years until the establishment of the Israeli state. And mm-hmm. so... Bottom line, we see ourselves as Jews, um, people that were sent in exile and forced to assimilate into the cultures and lands and peoples that we were at. We were still Jews in the sense that this was our religion. Not always the case, but um, we did our best to be part of a greater society, even that if it wasn't ours. By the way, I'm really sorry. I'm just super excited. Still have butterflies in my stomach. Oh, good. Um, and when we see the Palestinian diaspora, when I see it personally, um, I see a group of people, or I saw a group of people, I'd like to say, um, that were against assimilating into um, different countries that Israeli sees as part of a greater Arab nation and basically bringing chaos into those states. So if I were to take the case of the Palestinian exodus to Lebanon, right? The PLO in the late 60s, in 1968, if I'm not mistaken, um, started carrying attacks Um, and militarizing itself within the Lebanese state, which was already a very fragile state due to its sectarianism. Then we have the case in Jordan, that the PLO also uh, went into Jordan and started creating attacks against Israel into the state, including hijacking uh, airplanes. And in Kuwait, we see in the 90s that there's this mass exodus, right? There was 400,000 Palestinians, if anyone's watching fact check, in Kuwait uh, before um, the exodus. And also they brought chaos problems. And I'm using air quotes because I see it differently now, but for all intents and purposes. um, So we're just like, or I was just like, okay, these people obviously don't want to be part of their greater nation. They bring trouble. And the people who are, basically, um, in a sense, taking ownership, right, of the Palestinian struggle. The Palestinian struggle has been at large Arabized by the greater Arab nation. Everyone is fighting for the Palestinian cause. 
And so for those to fight for the Palestinian cause and not even want to assimilate these Palestinians, these Arabs, yes, into their state. So why should we? And I think that it's a common misperception that many Israelis have. Okay. Um, I see. Thank you. Thank you, Danielle. So, Izzy, I'd like to ask you the same question, what your, what your perception of Israelis currently is. So, when we talk about Israelis, I, I think about um, a group of people who moved into um, the land where other people live, and they excluded those people by power. Um, and you know, by, by terror as well. And um, it's, it's, there's a continued oppression from that group of people towards the Palestinians. And um, that oppression, while it is by the state system, my perception is that it is condoned by Israelis. Um, and it's this constant exclusion of the other, this is my constant perception of um, Israelis living in Israel proper specifically, that they do not accept, they, and they will not accept anyone other than a Jewish population. Although there is legitimate claim for the people that lived in that land to that land. So that's that's been my perception. And, and um, also, given that I lived in diaspora, I, I constantly watched what was happening in the West Bank and Gaza from afar. And it was, I always associated Israelis with the army, the, the military presence in the West Bank and later Gaza. I always associated the Israeli presence with the military presence. So in my mind, it's always about um, military military and arms and weapons and war and um, issues like this. So that's that's basically my, my perception. It is, as I said, a group of people who came into the land um, and created an exclusivist space for them that resulted in the expulsion of my father and my mother and my family on both sides. Uh, just a shout out to EMs. PLO is not the Palestinian refugees, two different things. You are yeah. e extremely correct. Um, yeah. I just wanted to start off with what my common misconception was in the past and how this misconception is carried with many people today. Uh, Many don't distinct between the two. The PLO is also irrelevant to today. Um, so thank you for uh, clarifying and letting me speak on that. Um, so it's what, what I see when I hear you talking about Israelis and me talking about Palestinian uh, refugees or the diaspora is kind of like this exclusivity, right? You see Zionism as a self-determination of the Jewish people, excluding the people who are living in this land. And we look at the Palestinian diaspora as part of a greater Arab nation that excludes themselves. And, you know, 
being excluded yeah. also by the Arabs. It's kind of like a reciprocated yeah. exclusion. So, yeah, I, I see what you mean. The thing is, um, this is probably, like, if I can talk about my my existence as a Palestinian in diaspora and what it means. Um, I, I was I was born into into um, the state of of being a refugee. I, I'm not a refugee myself. I was born into the state, but it's not about the official registration of myself as a refugee. It's about how I was brought up and how I was raised up by two Palestinian refugee parents. And and that came with a lot of anxiety. While my father... You told me your uh, father came from uh, Haifa, right? Haifa, and, yeah, exactly. And your mother from Yaffa? From Yaffa, exactly. Both are from coastal cities. Um, th- so in 1948, their families moved from their their uh, homes and, and on the coast to other cities inside Palestine. And then in 1967, they moved from the cities they took refuge in, in 1948 to Amman in Jordan. And this is where they met. Um, so they've been through this twice, actually, not just once. Um, and that brought up a lot of trauma for them, of course. And while my parents went to Jordan, where Jordan actually granted Palestinians the citizenship at upon entrance only for those who came in 1948 and 1967. I've always felt the sense that, especially my father did not feel at home. He felt he was in exile. Um, and that brought a, a lot of anxiety. It felt like he, he wasn't settled. It felt like at any point when it happens, we're gonna leave Jordan and maybe go back to Palestine if that ever happens or, or to their to their homelands if that ever happens. So there was a lot of anxiety going around and there's a lot of nostalgia as well. And that's something my father and my mother transferred to us. They were nostalgic to their lives in, in the West Bank and also in, in uh, Haifa and Yaffa. Uh, and that nostalgia translated into me being obsessed with listening to stories of how their lives have been. My father was born in 1931. So when 1948 happened, he was pretty much aware of everything. He remembers it clearly. Um, And he remembers his life in Haifa very clearly. Um, And I was obsessed with knowing how it was. And I wanted to know more about the roots, their roots, because they longed for those roots so much. And I wanted to be... I wanted to relate, I wanted to connect, and I connected. And then that connection to a land that I've never been to, I've never seen even, was established. Um, Did this anger and nostalgia ever translate to hate? Hate towards the Israeli state, hate to civilians? Hate, no, hate, no, I can't. Um, one thing. One thing that, stuck with me growing up in terms of how I felt towards the Israelis is during the first intifada, there was, um, I think this is when it was, a policy was instated by the Israeli state system where it was called the bomb breaking policy. I'm not sure if it's the right term in English, but I'm translating from Arabic, where 
Israeli soldiers were instructed to break the bones of Palestinian young men or young Palestinian men. And there were a couple of videos that were shown on TV at that time, and those stuck with me, and they're still in my head, drilling in my head. Um, I was seven years old at the time. It's hard for a child to see this. But the thing is, my my pain at that time, it, it, it had two, um, two channels. So one thing, one... One part of it was about the pain of the young Palestinian man whose arms were deliberately getting broken. And the other pain is watching as two other human beings are actually inflicting that pain on another human being. I couldn't understand how that can happen. I couldn't, I couldn't fathom it. They're human beings just as much as I am. How can they not feel the pain of that young man? How can, why are we so dehumanized? And how come they dehumanize themselves in the process? It was anger, it was disappointment, extreme disappointment, because again, I think of everyone as a human being. And especially for a child, a child comes with a very pure heart, right? They don't understand, like they don't, they're not bred with hate. Um, so that my feeling was anger, disappointment, frustration, feeling guilty for being safe. And this actually happened in, in 2014 as well when, when the war in Gaza happened. Just watching as, as children were being killed on daily basis and being helpless, being incapable incapable of doing anything and staying in the safety of my my exile i felt guilty i felt like i should have been there feeling the pain they're feeling right um so that's that's the feelings when 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 i see israelis or i think of israelis those are the feelings that are being uh brought upon for me anger sadness agony disappointment guilt all of that but hate no i, I hate no um however having said that we uh, like our perception of zionism is of being an oppressive ideology and and that's you know it's not hate but it's focused on zionism um as an ideology that actually brings about that kind of oppression and that kind of pain so um mm, go ahead you said that like you know kids are pure at heart yeah and i yeah. personally believe in that but i don't know if you know of the propaganda that organizations just like hamas does where they you know dress up little kids in ammunition we call them in israel Hamas, the kids of hamas yeah. Um, okay. like w when an Israeli sees that, what, mm. what, how, what could you tell them is the okay. case? How would you respond to them when they, when, you know, cause you see is uh, Zionism as a movement mm. that was very oppressive. Yeah. 
right, to the mm. Palestinian people. Yes. Yet we yeah. see these movements such as Hamas, right, oppressive to their own people. We see mm. child and ammunition and we go like, who who could do that? Yeah. Who could do that? Um, it's, so Hamas um, is building upon uh, the emotions of, of the people and they, they're pushing that kind of situation, which I can guarantee you that Palestinians themselves are not on board with. No parent, no Palestinian parent wants their child to get shot or killed. No one would actually, although what happens after if a child is killed, parents celebrate them as martyrs, but that's yeah. that's, that's, that's a bit of them saying or, or not being able to think that their children died in vain or were killed in vain. They don't want to think that. They want to, you know, and, and deep down inside, I, I again, I guarantee you, no mother is happy, no mother. They're, they're, they're dying inside of them as parents. They don't want that to happen. Um, I know for a fact, I have cousins living in Tulkarem and... Um, an event, some sort of um, conflict, uh, violent conflict happened in Tulkaram, uh, maybe in the early 2000s, um, where her, the um, Israeli military was present in Tulkaram, and she, she and her husband, my cousin and her husband, um, asked their children to stay at home. However, one of their children snuck out and got sniped up by an Israeli soldier. And for her, that was, he, he didn't die, he got injured. He didn't die, he got injured. But for her, it, it, she went crazy. She, she, was, she was in shock. She was in, in agony over her child being hurt. Um, what, what is being um, said about what Hamas is doing Political, this is all for making political points, but if you think about Palestinians themselves as individuals, no Palestinian parent is happy about their children getting killed. Not a single one, I guarantee you. None of them actually pushes their children, their children to, to, to danger, to zones of danger. Um, yeah. so, so it's always like you, you see it, yes, you see it, but it's important to understand that there's a big difference between the individuals and the political leadership um, yeah. for Palestinians. Just like the way you said, uh, you see Zionism as this oppressive movement and ideology. And I hear you, I hear you. But for me, being Israeli, being Zionist, so mm -hmm. for me to truly explain to you what that means to me, I'd have to go like... <laughs> back in time a bit. Um, yeah. I was born in Israel, but I moved when I was very young. I think I was like four years old, something like that. Yeah. And I moved to the States and I lived in California. Uh, when I went to the first grade, I didn't speak any English. I spoke only Hebrew and Spanish because my mother's Argentinian. Yeah. And whatever, the kids were mean to me, the teacher was mean to me, and they basically called me into the office with my parents and said, you guys need to stop talking uh, other languages at home. She needs to learn English. She needs to, you know, 
be able to communicate and talk. And so I basically, from that moment on, stopped talking Hebrew, stopped talking Spanish, just, and you know, with language comes culture, right? And so yeah. I so much wanted myself to be an American. Mm. Um, and I think until the age of 12, that's how I looked at myself, purely American. Um, I don't remember Israel, you know, mm -hmm. all my formative years were in LA. And so that was it. But through those years, people always told me, so where are you from? And like, this is at a point where I know I have an accent now, but when I lived in the States, I didn't have that much of an accent. And they're like, I would be like, I'm from LA. And they're like, no, where are your parents from? You know? So I always felt othered. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm also part Iraqi. And I did a family tree after 9-11. And when kids found out, they thought I was like a terrorist. It was just yeah. really bad. Um, and then when I was 12, I was in seventh grade and I started, uh, I moved to a new middle school and there was a large Israeli population. And this is really the first time I really had any communications mm. with Israelis besides my grandparents that lived in Israel yeah. that I talked to. Um, and I was just like, whoa, you know, these people are weird, but they're my people. And like yeah. uh, my best friend at the time, Nofar, she, I asked her what Israel is like, cause I knew nothing. Like I'm telling you, I was positive Israel was this desert state with camels. Like, I'm not proud of it, but I was really stupid. And, and she told me about the IDF and she started telling me about the history of Israel. And like, you know, you start thinking of, you know, there's this place and it also coincided more or less with um, the Lebanon war in 2006, like uh, Israel yeah. and Hezbollah. Yeah. Um, and so I got this like uh, shot of adrenaline of patriotism. All of a sudden, you you know, you're reading about a diaspora that lived outside for two thousand years, longed for a home, right? Went through the Holocaust, went through persecution throughout the years, slavery, hiding their religion, exiles, inquisitions. You name it, we went through it. You know what I mean? And then against all odds, and after the murder of a third of our population, we are able to go into a land that was at large, from what I learned, uncultivated, okay? Mm. A, a land that, that we yearned for for 2,000 mm. years yeah. and basically liberated the mm. Jewish diaspora from 2,000-year-long mm. persecution and it seemed so noble and so just. And I was like, I'm going to be an IDF soldier when I grow up. And I remember coming home, coming to my dad. And my dad's like, how was school? I was like, oh, my God, it was amazing. I met Israelis. I learned about Israel. And I'm going to be an IDF soldier. And my dad's like, what? And I was just like, yeah, I'm going to go save the country of our people. Like, you know, we have yeah. to survive. We have to exist. Yeah. And like. Um, my friends going to Israel and just telling me like the chaos, the chaos yeah. of, of, of being in Israel right now. And that guilt you said that you felt um, mm. with the war in Gaza in 2014. Yeah. That's yeah. like the same guilt I felt as a child in the diaspora during yeah. that war. Like, oh, here I am in L.A. like sipping my Starbucks Frappuccino. Right. Well, there's yeah. like straight up war. And then asking my dad and hearing from him stories like. Yeah. My dad, when he was five years old, wanted to take the bus. My grandfather didn't allow him. My father thought it would be funny 
to just sneak out of the house and run to the bus. My grandfather ran to him, caught him, took, pulled him out of the bus. And as he pulled him out of the bus, my father saw bus explode. So, yeah. Um, so, so there was a lot of, for me, a lot of nobility, a lot of justice in, Um, in, uh, in being a Zionist and being a proud Israeli. And I can still say that even though I've, I'm, I'm, I'm learning, I still haven't learned, but I'm learning the Palestinian narrative. It still doesn't make me any less proud. Mm. If that's okay to say, there's some people that are probably going to hate on it, but um, it just means that when we established the state of Israel, we were in the midst of, of panic, you know, Mm. what do we do right now with the remaining Jews? Where do we take them? And I really don't think that anyone cared about the people who were here. They went by Western standards. The modern Zionist movement understood the rules of the international arena. And that was Mm -hmm. that the West was, had ownership of the globe of who would be the owner of what, you know? And so the Zionists were like, we need to move quickly. We Mm -hmm. are turning to the bricks. And that in retrospect was wrong, was a wrong Mm -hmm. approach because we, Mm -hmm. like you said, excluded a group of people that might not have had have had a strong national sense, yeah. but we're still very much connected to the land. Exactly. So it was exactly. yeah. it was an identity that was t- terrestrial, just like just like the Jewish nationality, right? Our our connection yeah. to the land is terrestrial. We yeah. didn't want yeah. any state. Exactly. We wanted our historic state, yes. the land of our people. And, yeah. and I think that I think I think the Palestinian narrative, the way you speak it, the way I understand, is very very similar to the Israeli slash Zionist, and and it's hard for us to see as oppressors, right? Because Zionism was intended to liberate liberate the Jewish people, so that yeah. we never never live in fear again, that we are never a minority that fears persecution. And um, we Israelis now need to acknowledge that this narrative isn't exclusive and isn't Mm -hmm. only ours. Yeah, that's true. That's the thing. You know, I've I've been in a lot of discussions with Israelis and, you know, Zionist Israelis versus liberal Zionist Israelis like a you know a um, variety of <laughs> Israelis and one thing that w- kept coming up is that um, there's this idea that the um, Palestinian national identity did not come about until the establishment of the state of Israel and that's true that's true but that does not negate our strong connection to the land where we have lived for a long time, right? Whether we have a state system or an, uh, or an aspiration for a state system or we don't, is orthogonal to the fact that we do feel we belong to that land. Um, a question, and this is like a very important nuance. Yeah. There was some form of Palestinian identity of a common right between the clans and tribes prior yes. Yes. to 
the movement, the Zionist movement and the establishment of Israel. That's true. Do you want to talk about it a bit? Like, so. So it was, um, we had, Palestine was um, composed of, of many tribes living in different areas and cultivating the land and working, you know, um, working and living. It's, it's a livelihood. And um, I think also because of, because a lot of our economic activity ha had relations to the land itself and what it produced. It even made our connection stronger because we were farmers. A lot of them were farmers. A lot of them were um, were taking part in harvest. Harvest is a big part of our heritage, our cultural heritage. We have dances. We have dances that talk about harvest of the land. Um, so the philosophy, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Well, why we didn't have an aspiration for a state per se, we, we wanted to continue to prosper in that land. And it might have ended up in a national aspiration outside of it being a reaction to the presence of another one, right? But we were never given the chance to do that. Um, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to I want to build on that because I, 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 I it's a claim often made by Israelis. They say Palestinians never had an aspiration for a state that only came in order to fight Zionists. Okay. Now, I think that it's important to understand that the concept of a nation state is a 19th century concept. Sure. And just around the time the second Zionist movement began was when a lot of countries around a, a lot of nations around the world started ha having statehood and it was kind of this popular concept to, to have a country. So as the Ottoman Empire was collapsing, the yeah. local... I think he froze. Yeah, um, he froze. So maybe until think... he comes back, if I could expand on what he yeah. was saying. Um, sure. So the logic behind I'm why... Hey. Oh, he came back. He's back. Yeah. Well, okay. uh, you froze a little bit. Sorry about that. I, I, I literally pay for the best internet connection, and it still sucks. Um, startup nation, they call it, but uh, we're still slacking yeah. with internet. So yeah. a lot of nations, it, what's the last thing you heard? Uh, nations, uh, Ottoman Empire started collapsing, and you know many, many – Groups of people, clans in the Middle East, saw this as an opportunity to finally have a country of their own. And Palestinians went through a similar process. It's not that Palestinian nationalism only came as a result of Zionism. It, it began prior to Zionism under the Ottomans. Sure. It's true yeah. that once Israel became a nation um, and Palestinians began to be oppressed by the Israeli military, well, then that just strengthened um, further strength, strength in nationalism. And as we know, often national identity or any form of strong sense of identity doesn't come out of the blue. It's, it's normally a, a result of being attacked for that identity. So, so it, you know, the, the claim that it, it was created as a result of fight Zionism, it's just not true. It's certainly true that Zionism fueled Palestinian nationalism. There's no denying exactly. that, but it's, it's a it's a little bit more nuanced. Yeah. 
so that's true. In, in terms of history, um, the Arab revolt happened prior to um, the creation of the state of Israel. And, um, um, right, but it's also that nuance, Izzy, is that the fact yeah. that it's called the Arab revolt. Yeah. Well, it, it, here's the thing. Although, although we share the same language and we share... Well, there are so many similarities, culturally speaking. We still had distinct identities within that bigger identity. Yeah. Um, um, so, so could you care to expand to it? Because uh, one, so yeah, I really want yeah. to know. And second, like, let me just put it out here to those who are watching yeah. the logic behind yeah. the fact that Palestinians are part of a greater, right, Arab nation. Yeah. Is, yeah. is, is just so... We see it a lot of times just as a reaction to Zionism because had we not come to this land, there would maybe not have been this strong sense of cultivation. We were like, oh, but the Palestinians saw themselves as the Shamis, right, before Sykes-Picot. And the Arabization of the Palestinian conflict, the fact that everyone came in to fight against Israel for the Palestinians when establishing the state. So what would you tell me and other Israelis makes you as a Palestinian distinct? It could be this, you know, you're Arab and Palestinian. Gam yeah, yeah, gam. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. That's the thing. We're, the, the identity as being Arab it exists, but the, again, there are smaller identities within that, sub, subcultures within that, that actually are... I could say even stronger in terms of, of belonging than it is when you belong to the Arab cultures or, or the Arab identity. So the Arab identity, you, when you say Arabs, you're talking about the Levant, you're talking about the Arabian Gulf, you're talking about North Africa, right? And each of which have very distinct cultural attributes and very different from each other. Um, um, you know, and even in the language, there, there are differences. Even in the dialect, there are differences, big, sometimes big differences. Um, while there was this, this umbrella of being an Arab, people from those smaller areas were identified as being from those smaller areas. And then there was also a smaller identity within that. So being a Shami is, is a level. But if you're from Syria, there's a there, there's a difference um, in your in your perception of yourself and your existence than when you are coming from Iraq or from from Jordan or from uh, Palestine. Although they weren't um, existing as political entities or political existences, the identity was already there um, and. Yes, there are again. There are so many many similarities, but there are differences because of the topography, because of the climate, because of um, uh, economic differences as well. The differences exist, and those gave rise to um, um, you know stronger belongings within the smaller identities. If that makes sense, I don't know yeah. if, if that answered your question. So, like, what's distinctly Palestinian that you'd go like he's Palestinian uh, God. there is you know the land the land itself is 
So uh, in comparison to Jordan, let's say, because I live in Jordan, um, Jordan um, is more Bedouin centered, whereas in Palestine, even before um, the existence of, or, or the creation of the state of Israel, you had cities and you had urban centers. Um, that was distinct to being a Palestinian. Uh, also, in, in terms of the land itself, the Palestinian land is actually more fertile than the Jordanian land, and that gave rise to differences in, in economic activity. So in, in Palestine, you'll find a lot of farming going around, whereas in Jordan, you probably find it in the north, but the rest of the country, it's more about um, cattle raising and herding and, and things like this. And like that economic activity gives rise to also differences in culture again because of herding then there were the bedouins the bedouins are more uh, centered around value systems that are different than Talahi, that are different than people coming from the city um uh so yeah in terms of distinction i think when we have tribes in palestine it's not the same as they are in jordan because of the differences in um, the demography, the, sorry, the topography of the land and, and the productivity of the land. Um, Palestine was more urbanized than Jordan, right? And so you would find more, more traders. I Palestine. mean, when you talk about Jordan, you talk about like, it's, it's, you know. Jordan is the Ottoman Empire. It's a very, oh, Jordan of the, so trend, okay. Yeah. Yeah, during the Ottoman uh, rule, Jordan wasn't as urbanized as Palestine was. It wasn't. In Palestine, prior to the establishment of the state of Israel, you had Yaffa as a center, you had Jerusalem as a center, you had Hebron, Nablus. You know, they, they already had some urbanized parts of them. Um, whereas this this is not the same in Jordan. Jordan, you're, you're, you're only talking about... Salt, maybe that's the only city that was urbanized during the Ottoman Empire, and those distinctions gave rise to distinctions within the identity itself. And so, another question I have: so we're talking about, you know, how one perceives the other, how we perceive ourselves. Um, yeah. My question is: what do you think? it would take on the Palestinian end mm. for reconciliation? Uh, um, and also, if you could answer, like, within that question, what made you want to take an active change and engage with Israelis? Okay. Yeah. All right. So one thing... One thing that we have to do on the Palestinian side is end the end the factionalization, and this is coming from a Palestinian diaspora. Um, we have to end the factionalization inside Palestine. We don't have a unified leadership that can actually speak on behalf of the people. Um, the PA does not represent; it, it might represent a group of people in Palestine, but does not represent all Palestinians. It certainly does not represent Palestinians in diaspora. Um, uh, we must end the, the, the uh, factionalization. 
um, we must um, work to unify a leadership, get build the nucleus of a leadership that is actually realist. Um, and, you know, start start thinking of how our future, how we want our future to look like. We don't think of that often. Um, we're very much stuck in the status quo ourselves. And we have to move past that and think of the future. On our, what, how do we want, what do we want? How do we see the future? Whether it's a one state or a two state or a federation or whatever, what do we see? What do we want? We, we have no clue. And we need to, to, you know, draw a roadmap to that. Um, and certainly we have to stop with the reactionary politics. That, you know, that's how I see it myself from my side as a Palestinian living in the diaspora. I have to acknowledge the fact that I do not live inside Palestine itself. So my, my perception, my, my view of these things might be very different from those that are inside. I'm speaking on my behalf at this point. Um, what made me want to engage... Um, uh, for me, I, like, it, I just always, when I talked about that um, video of the Palestinian, of, of the two Israeli soldiers breaking the bonds of a young Palestinian man, I just want to understand why. I just want to understand how. You know, I, I, I still don't get it. Like, I... I I want to hear from them how and why and how can we I don't get it you know I had a very different service in the army so for me I've had the really yeah. like you know sugar-coated pink kind of service um I served yeah. in a gauze as a um and uh officer in intelligence and I remember that when I first uh, got stationed in a gauze uh, my unit was in the border in Gaza for like about a couple of weeks, just taking over for yeah. another unit until they came. And there was yeah. an incident where Palestinian adolescents threw boulders and rocks at soldiers. And one of the commanders in the platoon uh, shot in the air, not towards anyone, just in the air. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a huge thing. It was a huge thing. Like the whole platoon okay. was ordered into the office. They're like, all they did was throw rocks. There was no need to shoot fire, not even in the air. Okay. Like you, okay. you guys could get in huge. Tr it's just not okay. And I remember going like, but they were throwing rocks. It's not like they were shooting at anyone. That was my opinion. Yeah. Like what, yeah. what, what is my officer on? Um, yeah. And always being told that yes, these are our enemy, but mm. our enemy is the father of someone and is the son of someone and is the brother of someone. And mm. even if you took a life, you know, saving your country, that life is still mm. important. And so the, mm. these were the values that I was instilled with. And so to hear all those other experiences, I can't talk on behalf of that because those aren't things that I saw or witnessed. Um, and when yeah. I hear those, th these kind of testimonies, I'm just, I'm shook. I'm like, yeah. okay, well, that was completely different than, you know, my, however many years in the army, a little bit over two. Um, yeah. 
So it was just uh, shocking for me to hear. So I really don't know why. Um, yeah. And I think, I think as an Israeli, it excites me that you talk about the end of factionalization because a lot of Israelis, what they have to say is like, okay, we want to negotiate, but who are we going to negotiate with? Right. Yeah. You, like you said, yeah. Mahmoud Abbas, he doesn't represent the Palestinian people. Hamas doesn't yeah. represent a partner that we can negotiate with, you know, because Israelis perceive them as yeah. they don't perceive them as any other kind of organization other than a terrorist organization. At the end of the day, we see rocker, rockets, missile towards our civilians. We see. Yeah. Um, attacks being carried by individuals where Hamas is taking ownership um, over these. So we're just like, you know, who, who are we negotiating with? And, and, and even more so, Israelis yeah. see how badly these elected governments are treating their own people. Mm. And so we're just kind of like, a lot of people think you guys dug the hole you're in and don't really see that this hole wouldn't have been dug to begin with. Yeah. Um, but here's the thing. This is, for me, it feels like this is a, a way to avoid confronting certain issues that are happening on your side. You yeah. Know? Uh, like, for example, you're, you're, you're saying this is the gov uh, government that treats its own people badly and, and the people are not doing anything about it. The thing is, even if we attempted and there were attempts to actually change um, the system for us, especially when it comes to the PA, the IDF interfered and um, shut it down, right? Um, so it's it's not... It's not like we don't want to, but it's been the case where we tried, or, or they tried, and it's been shut down by the PA and this, the state of Israel. So that needs to be confronted as well on your side. And this, is, this leads me to the question. I don't like. I don't want to say what you need to do. I want to hear from you what, what you think needs to happen on the Israeli side in order for reconciliation to happen. So I think, well, obviously there needs to be a change of government, right? But it seems that Israel isn't even able to change its current government right now, whether I support the current government or not. Um, yeah. But that's exactly why I think that on Israel's end, what we need to do is just to start as much conversations as possible, as it as possible with other Israelis. Um, and talk about it. Just talk about the fact that these things are happening. There are people who don't even, they don't feel the conflict, people in Tel Aviv or people just, you know, in the center or far away from the borders or from Jerusalem, places where they're, you know, uh, I don't want to say heavily affected, but, you know, heavily affected um, by, by the yeah. conflict. And so I feel like um, Palestinians also reaching out to Israelis would be a good thing just to hear their narrative coming from their end. Um, I think it can't be political. To be honest, I think it can't be political mm -hmm. because, just a second, my dad was calling me. Um, 
when we politicize this problem, we in effect divide a society, right? Just the way we see in the United States, Democrats are pro-rights for African-American or the black community, colored community, whatever they, you know, and, 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 and it's, and Republicans aren't, that's the stupid. This should be a political party that supports civil rights or doesn't support civil rights. It should be a humanitarian thing. And I think that's how it should be presented. Um, I think, I think, uh, you know, there are organizations like breaking the silence that, are trying to create this discourse. Unfortunately, they don't, um, their approach uh, is not working towards Israelis. Uh, left wing, right wing, yeah. Israelis are met with a lot of hostility. Yeah. Um, and I know it could sound silly to say this to a Palestinian, but the way to attract Israelis into this conversation is not by saying, look what we did. Look at the bad side of Zionism. Look at this. Look at that. Look at that. Like not trying to critique the people because I, Danielle, the individual, have no say over this. Right. I'm just one of a nation and of a government. And so the right thing to do would be going like, yo, there are people here now. This is how they're living. Like, you know, the, the socioeconomic uh, situation of the Palestinians are abhorrent and 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 try to connect to the humanitarian side. I think trying to talk about, hey, yeah, there are people here that have just this connection to the land. And I think we need to debunk these myths of radicalism because the truth yeah. is not every Palestinian is a radical person. And that was my belief before I started interacting yeah. with Palestinians. I thought every Palestinian wished me dead and like was hoping low key that like somehow Israelis would all drown into the sea. And then you talk to people and then it's not just hi, hi, what's up? How's the weather or all that stuff. You start working with them and those connections start getting deeper and more than these shallow conversations. And I went to the Hebrew university of Jerusalem where like half of the population, you know, um, are not just, uh, Palestinian or Israeli Arab or however they feel, you know, right to identify with. And you're just like, okay, I'm I'm talking to all these people. They seem so nice. You know, um, I worked with a guy, uh, in the restaurant I went, uh, his name is Saeed. Um, he is from the West bank and he has, um, a working license to, in Israel and he like lives in Israel for three weeks and then he goes back and every time I would come to him, he would just come and say, yeah, I'll be, yeah, I'll be, yeah, I'll be. And he would hug me and he was like, you know, inti binti. And, and he was just like, would tell me like uh, anything you need. I'm always here. And I would just, you know, one day I asked him, I said, I'm going to be really crude. And I said, how can you be so nice to me? Is any of your feelings towards me genuine? Because it's just different than everything I felt until that moment and that I witnessed. When I came to Israel, I felt the hostility between two people right away. No one had to tell me Palestinians were bad people for me to feel that they hated me. You know what I mean? Um, Interaction. Interaction also, uh, it, it, it made me more open to being knowledgeable, to asking questions to having my narrative challenged. And um, 
I came to a conclusion that if every day Israelis and Palestinians can get along, one, the problem is, you know, the government that rules both people that are in disagreement more than the everyday person. And second, that our narratives do not come at the expense of one another, don't threaten one another, or not, or not, they don't necessarily have to be. Yeah. There's just so much commonalities, whether it's our territorial, like, you know, uh, connection to the land, whether it's hand gestures that I see both Palestinians and Israelis do, um, our chutzpah, you guys have it too. Um, And then you're just like, once you start noticing that they're just like me, and then once I started noticing also, like, I support the Kurds' right for self-determination. I'm against what's going on with the Uyghurs. I'm against what's, you know, I'm always finding myself supporting these um, minority groups that are struggling for self-determination. And then I was just like, so, and never the Palestinian. So why never the Palestinian? What makes the difference? What makes it that? And even if there was severe terror in the generation that both our parents grew up, I think it's safe to say that at least from and since the Gaza war, which has been already five years, I mean, six, yeah, 2014. Six, six years. Yeah. yeah, six years. So there hasn't been that much terror, not, not in the sense that traumatized and crippled a nation as yeah. it did before. And then you're like, yeah. okay, so there's room for change. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, yeah, we're... We're getting on an hour, so I do want to okay. I do want to start to move to questions as well as final thoughts. So, sure. uh, friends watching, please ask questions now. We'll try to get to we'll get to a few, and then we're going to move this over to Discord, where we have an after party. The conversation continues both in voice and text, and everybody can join the conversation. If you're not in our Discord yet, I highly recommend it. It is one of the most inspiring groups. I've ever been a part of, and I'm not just saying that. Come and find out for yourself. While while people are taking time to ask questions, I do want to address um, a side conversation that happened in the comments while we were, while uh, yeah. Danny and Izzy were having this amazing conversation. Look, this was the easiest moderation job I've ever had, and the reason for that is because you two are just awesome and uh, just ma- made it work. If, if if we could replicate this in mass, then we'll have peace on on the land. Uh, so in the in the chat, I, I saw some people denying that Israelis have a deep connection to this land, and I'm I'm going to assume that every claim was well intentioned and not people trolling. Look, b- besides a historical and religious connection, which you know re- religion is subjective; it's each individual's religion. So we definitely have a religious connection. Um, it's, you know, Israel is the land of the Jews, according to our religion. But let's put that aside because that's subjective. Historically speaking, Jews have a very deep connection to the land. Uh, we still dig up artifacts from Jewish presence from thousands of years ago. There's an archaeology and, site right next to my house right now. There, there, filled there with go. things of yeah. ancient Judea. And 
And just to just to strengthen this this claim, DNA tests have shown that almost all Jews today originally came from the from the, the Levant region from the Middle East. So we have science to back it up. We have narrative and we have culture to back it up. So denying connection to the land. And this, this is, is the same for people denying Palestinian connection to the land. It, it brings us in the wrong direction. Not only is it false, but it does nothing to progress positive change. Now the, so Jews have a deep connection to this, this land. That does not mean Jews deserve more rights than Palestinians. No, that doesn't, just, that doesn't justify injustices towards Palestinians. That's true. But to try to deny yeah. connection is bringing us in a major step in the wrong direction. In addition to that, yeah. I, I saw somebody ask, how can Jews be indigenous when Judaism is a religion? You know, it's not, an, it's not an ethnic group. It's a religion. So this is where things get a little bit complicated. Because Judaism is also religion, it's also an ethnic group. So it, you could be born a Jew, you could convert to Islam, but you're still Jewish. You'd be a Jewish Muslim. You could not have, for example, I'm agnostic. I'm still a Jew. I'll always be a Jew. It, it's an ethnic group. So it's important to understand that as well. Thirdly, I saw somebody, I'm going to actually bring this up, Dusty, I'm bringing up your comment. Israeli army bloodlust for children's blood so much they put explosive bullets in their snipers. I'm also going to um, assume this is in good faith, but I need to tell you, Dusty, this is borderline anti-Semitism. You're invoking blood libel. One of the one of the oldest anti-Semitic tropes is that Jews love children's blood. Okay, so so to bring up a comment like that is to invoke a very deep-rooted anti-Semitic trope. You could speak about the injustices happening in in the West Bank under Israel's military rule day and night, and it's an important conversation to have. We don't need to invoke anti-Semitic tropes in doing so. And there's also, and let's try to be honest with our assessment of what's actually happening in the West Bank. The situation sucks, and we shouldn't try to downplay it and justify it. We shouldn't. That being said, the idea that Israeli, the Israeli army is trying to kill as many children as possible, that's just not grounded in reality. The Palestinian population, despite all the struggles they've had in the past, 70 plus years of the state of Israel, their population has tripled in, in size. Again, not justifying any injustice, but the, the whole idea that Israel somehow is trying to murder as many Palestinians as possible just is not grounded in reality. So if you want to be part of this awesome community we're building, and if you want your activism to be effective, these are some important things to keep in mind. I hope you join the Discord where we can just continue all these, all these uh, awesome conversations. Now, let's... Yeah. Can I respond just a yeah. quick? Sure, yeah. So one to dust, whatever your username was. I understand. I don't understand. But let's say I do understand your anger and where you come from. But it's not going to take us anywhere. Both sides, even the Israelis right now, are messaging me just because there wasn't in the last year or so. To both haters on both sides, there's a lot of anger and trauma that we both carry and a lot of mistrust and they're both valid. But what do you guys want? Do you want to continue living in this conflict? Do you want to continue hating each other? Do you want to continue propagating blatant lies to demonize one another? Or do you want to find a solution to the conflict? Do you want to live side by side 
do you want when you bring children into this world know that they're not going to fight their neighbors, that they're going to fight again and again in this vicious loop that will always come back to it? Wow. Or do you want to, sorry to say this, kind of suck it up, say this fucking happened, and I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said the F word. This happened. No, you can, you can curse. It's okay. This happened. I can't change the past like you can't change the past. But can we do something today to make a better tomorrow? So you can leave your hate comments at home if you actually want to educate yourself and get out of the, your comfort zone, just like I'm doing and just like Izzy's doing, just like Adar is doing, just like everyone here is doing, then like, come on. But if you're not, then take a step back and try to realize what it is you as the individual want for you and your family and how do you get that done? Awesome. Um, so, if I may also, um, first I want to address the issue of the um, connection to the land, the historical connection to the land for the Jews. Um, as Edward Said once said, although I disagree with him on a lot of things, but he said once that um, he was asked if he denies the connection, the historical connection of the Jews to the land. He said, of course not. We cannot deny that historical claim and we shouldn't deny it. But the issue is that their historical claim or your historical claim does not exclude mine. That's the only thing. But the historical claim actually exists. So that's something I strongly believe in. Um, the other thing in terms of the, the comment by Dusty, which was inflammatory to say the least. Um, when I talked about Gaza uh, in 2014 and watching what was unfolding there, and especially um, the four children that were um, killed on the beach while playing football, um, it, it broke my heart. It broke my heart to see that happening because I couldn't believe that someone is actually killing children. I, I, I couldn't understand it. Again, it's always the same refrain for me. I don't understand how this how this is happening. And at that time, I wrote a poem in English, if I may read it, Adal, if that's okay. Um, a, a poem in English, imagining what a child in Gaza would want to say to an Israeli soldier. Um, and I call it, I am your child. Um, it's it's childlike, so it's very simple. Um, I want to live, I want to love, if you let me, dear sir. I want to play, I want to learn. Look at me, I know you care. Look at me, for I'm flesh as much as you are. For I have a heart, I laugh, I cry. Look at me, dear sir. Look at, into my eyes, I dare you, and tell me how I deserve to die. I'm not a chess piece, I am a child. I'm not a number, I am a child. I'm not a lab rat. I am a child. Look at me, dear sir. I am your child. And this is how I perceive the whole situation. A child, any child is everybody's child. Nobody wants a child to, to die or get killed. That's how I see it. I think that was beautifully written. Agreed. Really beautifully written. Um, and Thank that's, you. I think, our message. We're all little children on the inside, right? Our inner child is just yeah. screaming. It just wants to live. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I, I think that's the perfect place to wrap up, unless there are some other final thoughts you'd like to share. And if not, we'll just take it to the Discord. Uh, 
Any final thoughts or should we? To the Discord. To the Discord, to the after party? Cool. Yeah. So again. Just, thank you, Izzy, for debating, debating me, talking to me. Uh, this was an amazing experience, Adar. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, and yeah. yeah. For sure, dear sister thank Izzy you. and Dan Danielle, it was a pleasure. As always, Thank for those so for those just joining Discord, I'm tossing a link in the comment section. Uh, once you join Discord, you'll see on the left side all sorts of tabs. Each tab signifies a different category. We speak on many different topics. You'll also see at the bottom, uh, on the left side towards the bottom, it will say lounge. You click on the lounge. The second you click on the lounge, you are connected via voice. And video if you decide. You don't need to speak. You don't need to show your face, but it's an opportunity to listen. And we continue this conversation along with the community members. It lasts anywhere between two hours to six hours. Yes, we go wild in the Discord. It's nonstop, day after day. People are losing sleep because of it. Relationships are ending, but new ones are being born. So that that's what we're doing. Uh, again, it was a great pleasure, and uh, 